This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. So the first question I had was, uh, how did you get interested as a young person in art? Well, like many people who were in creative fields, I began as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And my first gallery was in the Berkshires, Lenox, Massachusetts. I opened it when I was 19 years old wow. in 1972. So I've done many things. I had many jobs when I was a teenager, but I've been professionally involved in art since then, since I was 19. What made a 19-year-old get interested in it? Do you recall? Well, it started because my family had a heating and cooling business in Hartford, Connecticut. And a remarkably talented craftsman came to work for the company. And my uncle and my father were astonished at his skill. And he was much more skilled than the standard sheet metal worker. Mm. So they asked him, show us what you can do. And in an hour, he had knocked together an astonishingly beautiful coffee pot. And they asked, what else can you do? And it turned out he was fifth generation from a family of copper craftsmen from a small town in Portugal. And the work was so beautiful, my father and uncle said, well, let's make a whole line of samples and see if we can go someplace with this. And did my father drove down to New York City to the Gift District and immediately uh, was taken on by one of the finest Gift representatives and within a few weeks got a call that they had an order from Sears Roebuck, which back in the 70s, that was a big deal. That is a big deal. And, Mm. And so based on that, they started a business called the Copper Artisan. And this guy explained everything he needed, all the equipment, and went all the way. Then what happened, Sears Roebuck did not reorder. (laughs) That's the business world. I was just wondering if you remember the name of the artist, the Portuguese artist. I don't remember his last name. It's okay. Yeah. So... We, we, so we were stuck with all this inventory. It was really beautiful copperware and didn't know how to sell it. And I said, well, I, I can sell it. And so what I did is I loaded up my van, just filled it with all the copperware, and drove all over New England to nurseries and gift shops. And by the end of my tour which went all the way up to Maine, the van was empty. I'd sold everything. So I was quite confident. I said, you know what, I I don't need to sell to other people. I can do this myself. So I thought, well, why don't I open a little gallery called the Copper Artisan 
and we can move the inventory. So we set everything up. It looks beautiful, the copper. And we built these pyramid-type structures in the center of the room. And I realized we needed something for the walls. The walls look blank. And my mother said, well, I know an artist. Uh, I, see, I didn't really understand at that time that there was a giant difference between the art world, this big art business with complex of museums and magazines and collectors and professional artists and just people who made nice art. And it was the people who make nice looking art everywhere. But most of them are not inside this dialogue. We're not inside this international art economy. Well, I wasn't aware of that at the time. There was a difference. So went to this local artist. Can we have some art for the walls? <laughs> it was perfectly nice. It was uh, what a lot of people do, a kind of abstract figuration combination. Put it up on the walls. After the first weekend, I gave him a call. I said, we sold it all. I need more. <laughs> and this guy was astonished. And, and then as the gallery progressed over the summer of 1972 and people, artists in the neighborhood who lived in the Berkshires saw what was going on, I was approached by more and more people. Would you like to show my art? Would you like to show the art that I inherited? And by the end of the summer, we became a hangout for the local painters. And people be kept on giving me things. I kept selling them. At the end of the summer, one of these artists who had brought things in and who became a regular sitting around said to me, I see you have a lot of aptitude for this, but let me tell you, you don't know what you're doing. And you need to get yourself an art education. And I listened to him. And I switched my college major from economics to art. Mm. And question for you. You were 19 at the time. Right? You had some sold copper uh, you know, uh, cre creations or art before. How did you sell? Because this is an issue that a lot of artists themselves struggle with. What, what, how, how did you do it? That's an essential question. So, still a good question of, in our gallery now, how do we sell? Well, you've probably been into art galleries where you get high-pressure sales pitches, where people accost you at the door and won't let you go and are talking about the investment quality of the art and all of this. I never do that. I always let the art and the presentation speak for itself. Mm. So what, what I do is I was just explaining to someone who's coming in to do a performance at an opening party for our Kenny Sharf show, which opens on Friday of this week. And 
explained how everything in the gallery is spotless. Every work of art is hung level. Nothing's out of place. Uh, we're going over repainting the walls to make sure there's no imperfections. And we agonize over the lighting, over we have a model where we work out the installation in advance. So when people walk in, the work is displayed with total authority. Because I find if, say, there is dust on the floor, there are finger marks on the white walls, you erode the authority. You have to be behind the work with total confidence and belief. And you just then you need to know what you, you're doing. You need to be prepared. So many times as I buy art myself, I walk into a gallery and I say, this is great, what's the price? And the gallery attendant shuffles over to the desk and takes a, a dog-eared price list and looks at, um, let's see, it's $250,000. That's not going to work. You know, it, it, you have to know the price instantly. And you have to just matter-of-factly say, oh, this is $250,000. And you know, if, if you don't present it with authority, with confidence, you, you've lost the sale already. Mm-hmm. How, how can a gallery representative not know the price? <laughs> and it's funny because with art, unlike other goods where there are all these price indices and art sometimes the price is taken out of thin air (laughs) so you better be able to back it up with confidence in addition to that do you there's been some talk about artist statements titling of work and all the sort of verbiage that goes around the art and the importance of that what is your position on that is that important to selling art I remember a visit to my gallery by two of the great legendary collectors, Don and Mira Rubel. And I was introducing a promising young artist, and I started a little bit of an introduction. Oh, you know, this artist recently graduated from Yale, or whatever <laughs> the, the explanation was. And Don said to me, Okay, j- just let us look. And then you can start with the Mishigas later. <laughs> and, yes. and so I've also, since I've been experienced as a buyer, advisor, artist, you know, the most effective person presenting and selling artist I've ever met is Bill Aquavella, mm-hmm. who's really the dean of the art dealers in the United States. And we go into Bill's gallery. The gallery is so impressive. Everything is perfect. You go upstairs to the viewing room. Everything inspires confidence and beautiful lighting. Bill presents the artwork, puts it on the easel, mm-hmm. and simply says, Great painting. And, you know, no nonsense. No, going on about the date or things. You're just 
puts the artwork there for you to behold, but he's already created a platform mm -hmm. that inspires your confidence, makes you feel very comfortable, mm -hmm. and in most cases, he owns the work, he's put his own money behind it, so that gives you confidence too. So the contrast with a number of art galleries where they inundate the potential buyer with all kinds of information, um, so you, you can't you can sometimes hardly even look at the work. Right. Uh, so uh, other galleries, there's an attendant who's hovering behind you as you look at the art. <laughs> and, and that's I've always I, I always had a rule with my gallery staff: don't hover. <laughs> Let the people just look at it. But but basically, what we do in advance before the potential buyer even comes in, you've set the stage. Right. You've made the art look great. Maybe you have helped to plant some good stories in newspapers and magazines about the artist so people see something in advance that the announcement card advertisement in the art magazine is really thought out looks absolutely beautiful so before they even come come in to see the art mm -hmm. you've set the tone let's see you create a lot of confidence through your professionalism and uh, by letting the art speak for itself. The two questions that came to my mind as you were saying all this is, how do you find the right buyer and how do you find the right price? Because those are the two elements that have to come together with anything you can do as an art supplier in order to create value. Okay. Well, there are many approaches to the art business. Right. So one approach is to be very mercantile. You look for works that are very saleable, artists already have a brand name, and that's what you present, and you connect with potential collectors socially, and um, try to make sales happen. So I've done some of that myself, but basically I take a very different approach. I start with art that I'm inspired by. Mm. So, say, a younger artist, uh, where I think the work is really interesting, even if there's no track record, it hasn't sold much before, if I believe in it, I will get involved, help the artist with production, and my ethic is that if I believe in it enough and can articulate my belief, there's going to be collectors there who are just as inspired as I am. And it's always worked. What is so so uh, when I started Deitch Projects, a was a gallery that we had based in this building that ran for 15 years from 1995 to 2010. We started with this concept that 
often I would visit artists and they would show me the current work and then they'd say, I'd like to show you this. This is this concept I had that's maybe too ambitious, but this is what my dream is. I'd love to do this sometime. And I, I saw that almost every artist I visited had some dream like this. Mm. I said, well, wouldn't it be interesting not to go overboard, but to give younger artists a platform to realize these dreams? So our original concept was every artist got $25,000 in production expenses, mm. which is a lot for a young artists, particularly Huge. 1995, 96 was a lot. So big now. And so they could do whatever they wanted and just make it great. And the idea was that we'd offer this work for sale or the body of work and we take the production cost off the top and then split the rest 50-50. Mm -hmm. And if we didn't sell it, I would just keep the work from my collection. And so I'd have a collection of really great ambitious works. So we started off very strong. And what happened is that most of these works inspired a collector as much as I was inspired, and most of them we sold. Mm. So of that early group of the first year or so of the gallery, <laughs> I hardly retained anything as it, the work went to collectors. And we became a little more conventional later on with actually showing some paintings. But the, the, the basic idea became the same. To just to be really ambitious and if the artists themselves were that inspired if I was inspired we would find a collector to buy it who was inspired and so beyond that we would find museum curators who wanted to get involved with the artists and take it even to the next level Have you come across any common themes of what inspires you? Oh yes, so I'm attracted to artists whose work changes the game. So a lot of very good artists where the subject matter is fresh, innovative, but the technique is very conventional. And sometimes I get involved with, with artists like that. But what really excites me is the artist who has figured out a new way to make a painting. Mm. A, a new way to be an artist. So, I'll give you an example of an artist who now has yes. you know, received great acclaim. That's Mark Bradford, who's representing the United States at the Venice Biennale, it's going on now. Mark invented a new way to make a painting. It's amazing. Think of the millions of paintings that people have made since the Renaissance. Multi-millions of paintings. And Mark figured out a new way to do it. And you look at his painting, and first you think, well, he used a paint and brush. But then you look closely, you realize that it's 
all done with paper that he, most of his work, he does not use paint and brush. He, there are layers of paper, different colors, sometimes found paper that he sands down and then incises and creates these amazing images. Wow. There are other artists who also admire who created new ways to make a painting. I admire Urs Fischer's work a lot, where he has taken digital technology, connected it with traditional silkscreen, and invented a new way to create an image that's totally contemporary. Mm -hmm. So this is something I particularly admire. That's great. In a few weeks, I'm going to be doing a public talk with Miranda July at the Summit Conference in Los Angeles. Miranda July is someone who invented a new way to be an artist, where it's a fusion of what a writer does, a performer, a filmmaker, a sculptor. It's all combined in a new form. Mm where the, the audience in many of her works is a participant rather than just a viewer. So I'm particularly interested in artists like that who create a new form. Uh, something else that I look for is an artist who doesn't just make an image, but they have an entire vocabulary. So, say an artist, Matthew Barney, is, does complex work that involves sculpture, performance, film. It all has an integrated look because it's all connected with Matthew Barney's vocabulary, with his unique visual vocabulary, and which can apply to go across media. When you say visual vocabulary, what does that mean specifically? Well, so a theme. Well, some artists they, they there's a particular touch, particular yeah. way they use the brushstroke. So right. I. An artist who, one of the great artists of the past 50, 60 years, Cy Twombly, mm -hmm. you always know when it's a Twombly work because his gesture is so distinctive. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, a, it's a, an extension of his unique hand. Other artists like Matthew Barney, the vocabulary is more conceptual, right? Because a lot of the work is fabricated; it's done with electronic media, but it's all using built on the, this same vocabulary. Mm -hmm. I have a question about art through the ages, and you've been you've seen it through several decades. I would love to get your take on 
just a few words to describe. I know this is a massive question, but 80s, 90s, today, and here's a question that I've asked some people in this industry, and I've stumped them. I'd love to know what you think. Are we in a movement right now? And I get massively different answers. Yeah, well, first, let's take on the question, is there a dominant art movement right now? Yes. So we are in a very different time than, say, the 1950s, 60s, where there were clear movements. Mm -hmm. there, there was pop art, there was minimalism, there was anti-form, thinking of the 60s. Mm -hmm. So at that time, the art world was much more concentrated. And at that time, the 60s, the international avant-garde was concentrated in New York City and actually concentrated downtown New York City. <laughs> uh, and this concentration in New York lasted from in the 1940s up through the end of the 80s, mm. where New York was indisputably the art capital of the world, and where artists involved in, let's say, minimalism, they knew each other, mm -hmm. it was, and there was a dialogue. But we have a very different situation now, since 1989, let's say, the, the fall of the Soviet Union, and then Berlin becoming an important art center, and now Beijing, other cities becoming important. The art dialogue is much more international, much more dispersed. Um, also, it's opened up, so artists from different ethnicities um, who might not have fit so neatly into the mainstream art dialogue are now part of the broader dialogue. Mm -hmm. And so it's much more global. Yeah. So, and much more open. So instead of what has been called the master narrative, that if you studied art history, you see this narrative of Poussin going on, the great 19th century artist, mm -hmm. Cezanne, Picasso, and maybe ending up in Jackson Pollock, okay? Uh, it's much more open now of artists from very diverse backgrounds being part of this dialogue. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you have one movement that characterizes the art of today, that may no longer be relevant or possible. Interesting. So we have many interesting things going on. Uh, but, of course, there are trends mm -hmm. that are shared internationally. So, about 10 years ago, I began getting very interested in innovations in abstract painting. Mm -hmm. And 
I put together two shows at my gallery here, one called Substraction, which is sort of more tougher, more street-connected abstraction. The big stars of that show were Sterling Ruby with his spray paintings and Dan Colon with his bird-dropping paintings. Uh, and then we had a show called Constraction, which is more conceptual with an incredible group of works by Tauba Auerbach and other artists who were more conceptual and geometric. And when I moved to the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, yes. my favorite show there that I put together was called The Painting Factory, which was about an approach to abstract painting that connected with printing techniques and manufactured processes. So mm -hmm. went back to Andy Warhol with his silk screens sure. and through Christopher Wool, Rudolf Stengel, and uh, the ended with younger artists like Tauba Auerbach and Kirsten Bratch. So it was very interesting to see how this kind of more conceptual type of abstraction came from many different places, from Europeans, Americans in the East Coast, West Coast. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a big shared trend, and still going strong. Yes. But there is a new trend that's emerging that I'm very interested in. Uh, it is a vibrant revival of figurative painting. Mm. Now, there's always figurative painting. Um, it never goes away, but from time to time, there is renewed interest and very strong group of artists who connect with each other, and that's taking place now. now two years ago, Interesting. I curated a thematic exhibition entitled Unrealism, which focused on these new figurative artists. Mm -hmm. I presented it with Gagosian Gallery, mm -hmm. the design district in Miami. It was only a five-day show. It was during the art fair week. But so many people said to me, well, this is really interesting. Where's the book? And I realized I... It, there's much more to be done. So I am now producing a book with Rizzoli called Unrealism. And when the book comes out, I want to do the definitive version of the show. Fantastic. And so it's very, very interesting. So some of the artists... When is the book coming out? Well, maybe in the... Either the spring or fall of 2018. Okay. Yeah, within the next year. So some of the artists come from very classic backgrounds, earning MFA degrees at Yale. Mm -hmm. So terrific artists who've come out of Yale recently. Shabalala um, Self, Christina Quarles, and... 
a group a little bit older, uh, Ella Cruz Lanskaya, Tala Madani, uh, a lot of these people are friends. Mm -hmm. And then others kind of are, are more self-created, connecting more with vernacular imagery like Jamie and Giuliano Villani. Mm -hmm. um, it was very much coming out of a New Jersey culture. Then um, they're a group of artists who went to the Art Institute of Chicago and were influenced by Chicago painters of the 70s, 60s, 70s who were being revived. So it's it's a diverse group. Very diverse. Uh, yes. Uh, and although we're quite ethnically diverse. Yes. I can so I'm really looking forward to getting this book out and doing the next version of the show. I think that'll be very popular. I, I call very... it unrealism because I like the title. It is realistic painting, but none of these artists are slaving to get a a, you know, a precise realism. Mm -hmm. um, in, in today's world, maybe this kind of precise realism just isn't even real anymore. It's, you know, because you know, with all the talk about fake news and people creating their theatrical personalities on right. Instagram, etc. Very timely. It, it's it, so this painting reflects that of so someone painting a face, it might be a fusion between a cartoon face, something coming out of historical painting, something coming from a monster movie. Mm -hmm. And then a bit of a self-portrait as well. Right. So uh, all these artists have different approaches, mm -hmm. but it's really fascinating that you know there are still very good artists who paint from a live model and try to be as truthful as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, and I respect that approach, but I'm actually right now more interested. In artists who try to portray this contemporary reality that may not be as real <laughs> as reality was, I think it makes some sense years ago. Uh, the advent of technology and digital art has, has had an impact on what is real, what is yes, you know, yes. So and a number of these artists that. see that they they feel free to use digital technology, mm -hmm. um, Photoshop type. What is your programs. feeling on the cross-section of art and technology? I wanted to ask you about that. Oh, it's, this has been going on from the very beginning. Of course. Okay, yes. so... Some people are so know, uncomfortable well, well, with it. Well, there, there's a lot of research and theorizing about you know, artists from the Renaissance mm -hmm. who use the camera obscura. Mm -hmm. And, right. you know, I, maybe some purists would get upset when they find out that a top contemporary painter uses an opaque projector to project an image and sort of traces it in. Well, maybe that's what Vermeer was doing as well, right. but in a different way, with right. a camera obscura or some sort of mechanical aid. 
you know, this is still more speculative. Mm -hmm. There are famous lectures and writings by David Hockney, for instance, that explore this. So then there's a lot of interesting research between the advent of photography and modernist painting in the 19th century, of the connection between the two. And so you look at paintings by someone associated with Impressionism, like Gustav Kaibot, and the views may not have been possible without the advent of photography. Right. Seeing in a different way. Exactly. So art and technology... It, uh, just it, it's there's always this connection, and it's, it's interesting that like some of the traditional art schools, like Carnegie Mellon, mm-hmm. they're schools of art and technology. That's right. You know, so uh, people should but, embrace it. Well, but, but <laughs> it's art, been see, art, it's, it's it's a very open platform. So there's a lot That's of right. also many connections between art and literature. Um, it, so it's. Art, art is not a self-contained field. Right. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. You have been, I've read that you've been named as a, a pioneer of art finance, the way art runs today. I've, I've read somewhere that uh, you're a pricing genius. <laughs> no, no, so and yes. So what, how does how does that happen? What is your magical formula when it comes to pricing? I know people okay. asked that question earlier. Okay. Do you have a certain? Well, yes. So just early in my career, mm-hmm. I helped to found the art advisory and art finance department at Citibank. Yes. Which is still thriving. So that's, I love that. That's that a, that's a big part Amazing. of my background, and that's that's what I did from. 1979 to 1988 and I'm still involved to some extent in advising some financial institutions mm-hmm. in these issues now you ask about pricing yes okay well in the middle ages there was a concept of the just price mm-hmm. <laughs> so pricing an artwork is not a science it's an art And because nobody actually needs this, needs a painting, needs a sculpture. It's a different level. This is something that after people have satisfied basic needs of food and shelter, security, then they can get involved in some of the higher achievements of civilization, mm-hmm. including art. Uh, so how do you price something that nobody actually needs? <laughs> uh, like everything else, it's ultimately supply and demand. Yes. But with art, it's not as simple as just uh, the price of a share of stock that there are certain shares and number of people who want them. Um, the, the clever art dealers 
have many approaches to creating value. And there is an elaborate endorsement system in the art world, in the art market. So if I present a work of art to you it's for sale, and you ask me, oh, uh, is the artist in the museum collection? No. Is there any writing on the artist? Uh, has an art critic endorsed this artist? No. Any well-known collectors who bought it? No. Is the artist friends with a celebrity? No. <laughs> Did the artist go to a distinguished art school? No. Okay. So then it's just simply the quality of the art itself. Mm -hmm. But that's generally not how the market's made. The market is made because I show you a work of art and I say, oh, well, I give the name of some distinguished collector. They just bought one. Or, oh, did you see of Architectural Digest, there's one hanging on the wall of this movie star's home. Right. Or, you know, and oh, the Museum of Modern Art is giving this artist an exhibition in their project room. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, they just, oh, the artist is going to be um, in the Venice Biennale. And so all of these endorsements are built up to help give the artwork value. Got it. And so a lot of what art dealers, artists do is working this whole social network mm. of making sure that the pioneering curators who are the first ones to understand that they get to the studio to try to get this work into what will be an influential thematic show of young artists mm -hmm. to the, give a very good introductory price to a distinguished collector who's going to put it on their wall and like for instance there I mentioned the Rubel family. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a wonderful public space in Miami. Mm -hmm. And one of the highlights of the Art Fair Week in Miami, mm -hmm. beyond Art Basel Miami Beach itself, is going to the Rubel collection to see what they have bought during the past oh, year right. and what they're presenting. And they're very good at what they do. They're very insightful. And they can make careers. And uh, there was one artist who was friendly with, and he asked my opinion. He said, the Rebels have offered to buy a whole group of my works. They're going to give me the central gallery. And, but they want a very good price. Uh, what should I do? Because mm -hmm. I can probably sell the work for more elsewhere. And I said, 
sell to the rebels. It's going to really pay off for you. And he did, gave them a very good price, and that basically made his career. Amazing. And because everybody saw the work look great. Uh, so that's an example of how you build a market, build the endorsement system, and there are many people who follow mm -hmm. what the leading collectors do. Many people follow what influential museums do. And so if you have built up these endorsements, uh, the artwork can go from the $5,000 starting price to, to uh, multiples <laughs> of that. Right. Uh, then there's another side that has come on more recently, it's more controversial. It's a kind of manipulation of auction prices. Mm. And so, and almost all the good artists and art dealers try to fight against this, but it's hard. So let's say there is an astute person who spends a lot of time following the emerging artists, mm. and they buy up the work of a certain promising artist. So they might put one at an auction and then get their friends to bid it up. And so they own 10 works of this artist, right. And their friend is bidded up to $100,000, and all of a sudden they have a portfolio that's worth a million dollars that they bought for $30,000. So this is a controversial practice, but it's very hard to stop. But uh, yes, the auction prices do become the, the standard, mm -hmm. um, and if the artist is really excellent, actually these prices can be maintained and even increased. Um, but sometimes this is all illusory, yeah. and it, it all crashes, and it can really hurt an artist. It's, it's hard to come back, because a wider market doesn't understand that this was all manipulation. They think, well, maybe it's the market saying this artist isn't any good. Mm -hmm. So the dealers who specialize in emerging artists now have to be quite defensive and careful about the secondary market and the auction market. Right. Quick follow-up questions on what you just said, which is really very, very, very interesting. One is, if there's a new artist uh, who is trying to break into the art market, how do they go about securing these endorsements in the first place? Secondly, if you think about artists who are successful, to what degree is their success driven by their ability to manage the network of endorsements rather than the intrinsic quality of the art. Okay, so it all has to be integrated. So I know many artists who spend much more time socializing, going to 
gallery openings, parties, sort of thing, than they spend in their studio. And this is, it, it, it's, they might have fun doing this, but it's not going to take their art anywhere because it's all based on the quality of the art. Now, an artist who is completely isolated and doesn't connect socially, they might have a tough time getting the art out. Mm -hmm. uh, but I know plenty of very shy, retiring artists who do get the work out because other people do it for them. <laughs> so this connecting with a wider network of endorsers almost always starts with other artists. So let's say at an art school, the other artists always know who the big talent is. And they support this talented artist. They want to, if they're invited to an exhibition, they say, well, you should invite my friend as well. So almost all great artists, their acclaim starts with other artists, with their mm. artist peers. And, and so one of the reasons why sometimes you have these surveys, like, like the Crystal Bridges Museum made a big effort to tour all 50 states to try to find the great new artists in America. They did a show. I'm not sure if anyone coming out of that show uh, has become an influential artist the past couple of years. It's because the artists are not out in the middle of nowhere. They're not school teachers in an unlikely place. You know, they are in Los Angeles, in New York City. They're places where they're in dialogue with other artists. And the, the other artists push them, you know, you know, they see exhibitions around and say, you know, I, I've got to push myself more. I'm, I've got to be better than that person. So this social aspect of artistic creation is essential. And if you go through art history, it, you list the names of the great influential artists, almost all of them were part of an artistic circle, part of an artistic dialogue. Right. Um, right. You know, think of the New York School. Yes. Okay, some of the artists were more social than others, but this, this was a social network of artists who criticized each other, looked at each other's work, and that's part of the reason for the strength of the New York School. Mm, that's such an important They pushed thing. each other. The same, you know, go back to Impressionism, where they had, they withdrew from the Salon and had their own Impressionist exhibitions and collected each other's work, supported each other's work. So is it, that's, that's where it starts, with artists. And 
like anything else, you know, if you're selling something that's not substantial, ultimately it's not sustainable. It's going to collapse. You know, so all of the partying and clever socializing you know, with art critics, museum people, collectors is not going to help an artist if the substance isn't there, ultimately. Mm-hmm. But, of course, there are many artists who have successful careers largely because of their social networking, but ultimately they're going to be overtaken in the art historical rankings by the artists who have created truly innovative and substantive work. Uh, I, I, I'm, I, you know, there's a lot of cynicism in art of you know people, you know, saying, oh, that's the emperor's new clothes, and this is quite common. But I'm a very firm believer that the great art does have substance. It, it, mm-hmm. it is the, the art that is ultimately rewarded in art history and in the art market is generally the art that truly has substance and innovation. Sometimes it takes a little time. There, there are a number of fantastic artists who, for various reasons, were neglected, that they dropped out, that they connected with an art gallery that went in the wrong direction. Um, but things tend to get sorted out, mm. even though it, it may take some time. And to that point, is the market wrong ever? You know, you know this, you see the value of art, and you, you know it's a good piece. Oh, the, the, mar- the market's wrong all the time. Right, but because of the political structure or whatever it is that's going okay, on, so well, one, one see of the, the genius of One it. of the things that I enjoy about the art market mm. is that it is inefficient. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is we can't apply the efficient markets theory to art. Yeah. Okay, so it's just a basic thing of of because contemporary artists are alive and they're they promote and the contemporary galleries do a great job getting publicity. Contemporary art, just is a general rule, is too expensive relative to historic art. Mm-hmm. This is a big generalization, and there are plenty of things that contradict that, but in in essence, that's correct. Um, So, I'm the biggest advocate of Jean-Michel Basquiat, and he was a friend of mine. I was the first person to write about his work, and um, and as Basquiat, there previous writings about his work as Samo. Uh, and so, but is, with his work being $110 million and rare historical artists from the 19th century historic, you know, being 10% of that, if that, you know, that, that doesn't really make sense. But, Basquiat has 
a relevance and an excitement for our culture today mm -hmm. that gives it a different kind of value. Right. Fascinating. Um, next question is around galleries. I've had a lot of discussion uh, in the market, in the ecosystem of New York City especially, how they're all closing due to real estate prices and how there's, there's that fancy word disintermediation between the artist and the market and all that. What are your feelings on that? Well, first, that's an exaggeration. Mm. Um, so galleries have a lifespan, and there are always galleries opening and closing. Mm -hmm. I've been in this since the early 70s, right. and many of the great galleries that shaped my understanding of art, they close for various reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, just their lifespan you know, was, was over. And, uh, so this, it, it's an exaggeration and a misinterpretation to say, you know, like, oh, the middle-range galleries, they're closing. <laughs> there are many galleries that could be described as middle-range. I, I don't think that's accurate either because mm -hmm. they may not be mega-galleries with... 17 branches around the world, but they represent some of the world's great artists, so I wouldn't necessarily call them middle galleries. Uh, there are so many of them, and there are many strong galleries that have opened recently. One of the big trends in New York is galleries from Europe opening here. So yes. Listen Gallery, Periton Gallery, Buchholz Gallery, Timothy Taylor Gallery, I mean, I could go on of you know, the, the number of European galleries that have opened here. Mm. It's just in the past two years. Mm -hmm. uh, and then something amazing has happened. You walk around the East Village, go into one of these storefront galleries, and see on a shelf there's the gallery map. It's astonishing. In in a couple of years, all of a sudden, there could be a hundred galleries on the Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. And, so and now the, there are pop-up galleries as well. Yes, <laughs> yes. So there, the, I'd say the commercial gallery sector is thriving. Certainly there are challenges with business yes. as structural changes, that the auction houses continue to be more powerful continue to be putting more emphasis on private sales and, and fairs own galleries. And yeah, and there is the advent of what is called the mega gallery. Mm -hmm. Mega gallery is not completely new. The Marlboro Gallery did this in the 1960s, mm. branches all over. Um, so you know, this, this is even Duran Royal did this in the 19th century mm -hmm. with branches in London and New York in addition to Paris mm -hmm. and activity in Germany and so no, this is not this is not, it's not the doomsday new. that some people are saying um, about galleries but, uh, oh, not at all no but it, it is uh, it's put a lot of pressure mm -hmm. on galleries that do not have 
immense capital infrastructure yeah. to compete with several of the galleries that do, mm -hmm. and with the auction houses. Uh, but this is such an entrepreneurial field, and uh, they're just almost, I would say on a weekly basis, but certainly on a monthly basis, mm -hmm. there's another new gallery yeah. that opens up. And many of them have very interesting programs. Mm. And I love it that it, it doesn't have to be an impressive facility. Like there, there are terrific galleries in basements on the Lower East Side. Yes, there are. And most of these galleries will not be, have the wherewithal to build into something big. But some of them will. Every generation, there are a few galleries that start in a basement, uh, or as Larry Kagosian did, uh, stand on the sidewalk selling posters, <laughs> and and build it into something amazing. Mm -hmm. Very good. Did you have a question for Jeffrey? Uh, well, one last question, uh, unless you have more. I, I have a couple, but okay. please. One question is, you, you talked about innovations uh, in in art uh, that that you find very inspiring. Are there any innovations in the way galleries are trying to connect with new users or new art consumers who may not previously have been part of the art market uh, that 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 you can point to that shows how uh, the market for art can be broadened, perhaps through technology. Well, sure. So, well. Something that I did with Deitch Projects is when I showed some artists who came out of subcultures connected with skateboarding and surfing and street art, like Barry McGee, I noticed we attracted a, a completely new audience. Mm -hmm. and. I did projects that connected with artists who straddled art and fashion, like with Jeremy Scott, and I saw that there was this whole new audience that was developing, that traditionally the New York galleries catered to a professional art audience, people who made a living writing about art, making art, curating art, and very dedicated collectors but I saw there was a whole new audience there interested in progressive culture where art was just part of an array of particularly innovative fashion, film, music, architecture you know, that interested them. And so I, I embraced this. I ran with it and presented performance programs, showed artists who came from different fields, like filmmaker Michelle Gondry, graphic designer Stefan Sagmeister, bringing in these different constituencies. And we built a, a great audience. And of course that led to a broader audience of collectors. So that's something that I did. It was by instead of keeping the gallery very stiff and forbidding, 
it was opening it up right. as a social platform. Um, and we see that a number of galleries um, are very active with social media, with Instagram, that and that's certainly effective. Um, And I, I think it, it also by showing certain artists who transcend the art world. Um, Yayoi Kusama is a good example. Mm -hmm. You're bringing in a lot of new people. And there are a number of special artists who whose statement goes beyond just the inside art world. Right. And with Kosama, it's a very interesting example. During the time when she had her Whitney Museum exhibition, Louis Vuitton also did a project with her, and there were windows with Kosama all over the world. And I remember walking in the corner of 57th Street and 5th Avenue, and seeing like almost a hundred people uh, in front of the windows of Louis Vuitton looking at the Kusama display, taking photographs. And so this is really something interesting of this connection with a powerful fashion brand. And um, at one point, the majority of people in art would have said, well, this is terrible, this dilutes the art, this dumbs it down. I, but I, I think that you look at this and see the effect, it, it, it has opened up so many more people to the work of a challenging artist. And, and so I, I find this fascinating. And so I'm very interested in this collaboration between sophisticated fashion and progressive art. And I think we're going to see more of this. Um, so I'm so glad you said that, because I think it opens up people's eyes, the, yeah. the cross-section between art and fashion yeah. or art. And there's movies. another, something else that's in the news now, so yeah. it's just marvelous that the Obama's right. National Portrait Gallery mm -hmm. chose Kehinde Wiley to paint the Obama portrait. Mm -hmm. And Kehinde's an artist who I worked with here for many years, wow. great artist. And Kehinde's work got a whole new level of appreciation when his paintings appeared on the walls of the sets in Empire. And um, so I think that that's something so interesting where an artist being involved with a TV production, um, involved with film, where there are arts in a film, this is a, a fascinating way where 
an artist can get a vast new audience. Yes. In, in, a, in a serious way. I agree, 100%. We're working on a project about, uh, with the movie studios on the West Coast as well, uh, as Orange Genius. We'd like to uh, give artists the opportunity to merchandise their work, if that's a word. Uh, for if, if Steven Spielberg is shooting a, uh, a scene, we'd like to have their art be seen in the walls of those scenes. So I'm working very hard to launch that business at the moment. And um, if you're interested, I would love to talk to you more about that. <laughs> I think that'll be really exciting. Television shows, media, the this, but in particular, the film industry. So um, I think that's a, that's a big opportunity for artists. I'm so glad that you hear that. And then I, uh, I'd like to work with the fashion industry as well, the CFDA in particular, and the, and the incorporation of art into some of their new creations. And it would be wonderful. Be great. So, I'm, very, very excited that you agree. <laughs> um, the last question I had I, uh, was the starving artist. You know, you're poor, you're burning furniture in order to, you know, in order to make the art. Um, one of the things that I'm trying to do as, a, as the company founder for Orange Genius, you can be a brilliant artist, but you also have to be smart, as, as like yourself, about the business side of things. You don't have to master it yourself, but understand how the system works and understand who you need to be in touch with in order to to be successful. Well, so, I think this applies to any field. Sure. So it's, it's not necessarily being business savvy, but if you look at scientists, physicians, Completely. people who are, you know, writers, so very, the very... ones who have a broader sense of how to communicate their work mm -hmm. are generally the ones who are more successful. Yes. So, I, I, when young artists come to me and ask for some advice, one of the first things I ask them is, well, who's your team? Because you can't just do it by yourself. So, I ask, Who's the art writer who really likes your work, who's written something good? Um, is there a young art dealer who's been helping you? Uh, is there a pioneering collector who's already got a few of your works? Who are your art friends? Mm -hmm. now, who, you know, going in, and so crucial to artistic success is having a network. Yes. A network can help you to communicate your work outward. Also, networks who can help you say, you know, people who you can trust to say, no, that's that's the wrong direction. That painting you did last month, that was much better. And can talk out the work with somebody. Uh, of course, it, it's all ultimately individual initiative. Um, and sometimes people around you talking can send you, send the artist in the wrong direction. But uh, the artist who understands how to build this network mm. and connect socially and benefit from the market is usually the one 
who can make the strongest art historical statement. Mm. Excellent. That confirms some of our thinking around the business as well. So it's wonderfully satisfying to hear that from you as well. <laughs> do you draw? Do you do art? Do you paint? Oh, well, when I, when I began, I didn't really differentiate so much between art that I made, writing about art, curating, art dealing. And ultimately, I found that the art gallery was the right platform for my set of interests and abilities. Mm -hmm. But what but, do you enjoy but, the but, most? But uh, the way I approach mm -hmm. the art gallery it's, it's in a creative way, so whether it's our graphic design or website, sure. that, you know, there's... There's art. Well, That's say art. It, it's, there's an artistic side to it. Um, Completely And at, at one point, I seriously thought about focusing on an art career, and I just, I didn't have the will belief in myself to do it at the time um, and for many years I regretted not pursuing it but then ultimately got a lot of creative fulfillment from the gallery so I don't feel that way anymore mm -hmm. but you could always do it now well <laughs> you know, I fantasize about uh, having an exhibition with a pseudonym we'll see Thank you so much. This okay. has been an incredible experience for well, me. Thank you for coming over. Thank you very much yeah. yes. for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.